Good afternoon, everybody. I'd like to ask, if you would, my, my favorite people, my favorite service, if you guys would mind standing with me as we stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll be doing it today, reading to you from Acts 21 and 22. Here we go. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and let 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. And when they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became very quiet. And Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priest and all the council can themselves testify, I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you'll be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded them. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. 
Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Yeah, as you can see, uh, during the month of August, we're looking at the many trials of Paul the Apostle and asking what can we learn from them. You know, as you read through the book of Acts, you see, especially at the end, that wherever Paul goes, he constantly finds himself on trial, uh, basically being attacked for something he believes or something he says or just for being himself. And so we're asking, what can we learn from the trials of Paul? And I think that when we look at this passage in particular, we see how much we need courage to face the trials of our life. And the reason I know that we need courage is because of this. Uh, Because when you look at our, our lives and culture today, despite the almost infinitely more secure social environment we live in today than our ancestors did. I mean, you think about if you were born in medieval Europe, right? No good. You're born in ancient Greece. No good. Uh, and in those times and places where things like pestilence and plagues uh, and infant mortality and disease and marauding nomads, those things were the norm rather than the exception. Anything about today, by contrast, how much vault-like personal security we have that still, even today, we, many of us, face internal fears we can barely come to terms with. There are more people in our culture today on antidepressants than ever before. More people in counseling for fear-based issues, and there are more deaths in the military from suicide than there are from combat. The point is, many of us, again, we struggle deeply with internal fears. How can we face and handle these fears? How can we handle the trials of our life? I think this passage today is going to show us three responses to fear, three responses to trials, three different types of courage. We're going to look at what each is, what each shows us, and where we get the power for what we need in the end. We're going to look today at number one, the people and their missing courage, number two, the Romans and their false courage, and finally, Paul and true courage. Let's begin here in number one and look at the people and their missing courage. Uh, Paul here in the story, he's been traveling the world and here he comes home finally to his home city of Jerusalem. He's been traveling the world teaching that because Jesus lived and died and was resurrected, the temple, the Mosaic ceremonial laws, the dietary laws were no longer necessary. They had just been pointers to Jesus. But even though Paul had taught that these things weren't bad, they were just pointers, the Jews hated Paul. And so when Paul walking through the city and he comes into the temple, he's recognized, he's seized, and he's almost physically beaten to death. The passage says this, that the whole city was in an uproar, that these people stirred the crowd up, everyone got in on the act, the people of Jerusalem violently react and nearly murder Paul. Why? 
Well, we can see now through the lens of human history, they did this because they were afraid. They were afraid of Paul's message and what the message of Jesus meant to them and to their culture. And by the way, this fear is what is at the bottom of any group of people who gather together to do violence to someone or some other group. Why, though, were they afraid? Look at what they say. They say, this is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against who? What do they say? Our people and our law and this place. What do they say? They're saying blood and soil. Our way of life is being threatened. The supremacy of our people is at stake. See, the Jewish people had come to believe. They had a privileged position in the world that God loved them only. And now that position is being threatened. Can you see what's happening? There's a group of nationalists who come out and attack Paul for saying that God's love wasn't just for them, but for all peoples, all nations, all skin colors equally. And Jesus didn't just love them, but the whole world. But when their supremacist views are threatened, they riot. Why? Because they couldn't face the truth. Couldn't face it. In other words, their violence is fueled by cowardice here. They were afraid of what Paul's message, what the message of Jesus meant for their position in the world. And when you are only thinking about keeping or maintaining your position in the world, your supremacy, it's hard to love anyone else. And if you want to know, by the way, because I'm going to go there for a minute, why this whole white nationalist movement is flawed, just ask yourself, are they saying anything? Is there any part of the conversation about loving anyone else, especially about loving people who are different than them? Is there any mention of any of the wrongs done by white nationalism here or around the world? Listen, it's just never gone well. And the most important question you can ask is, if you're a Christian today, is Jesus a part of that conversation in any way? Does that look or smell or taste at all like anything gospel-centered or others-oriented? Of course, the answer is no, it's not. The famous Austrian psychologist named Alfred Adler gives us a profound question and his question gives us an insight, a key insight into why people like this group here, like any group anywhere, like any person anywhere does insane things when they're afraid. Adler asked, and I'll paraphrase, he said, if you want to know what's at the bottom of any group of people that does something crazy, if you want to know what your, your main motivation in life is, what's pushing you at the bottom of who you are, he said, just ask yourself this question. That ask yourself, what is my greatest fear? What's my greatest fear? What is my heart's greatest nightmare? That's what's driving you. 
About two years ago, one of my sons played in and won this big Central Texas baseball all-star tournament. And it was awesome, by the way, to win the whole thing. And this is just spoiler alert here. This is the first of three baseball stories you're going to get today. Last week, it was sci-fi. This week, it's baseball. Next week, it may be your turn. Who knows? But anyway, this is a crazy game that we played in this championship game. Come from behind deal. And it was even better because it was against an unpleasant coach and unruly fans. And uh, the coach had more or less bullied my wife before the game. That's true. Not never good. Taunted us with pelvic thrusts aimed at our dugout during the game. That's also true. But the worst of it came after the game because when our team came from behind and we scored a whole bunch of runs in the winning run in the last inning, the catcher 11-year-old kid for the other team who had been trying to injure our players the whole game to the extent the umpire had to tell them to stop. He started coming up to all of our players after the game and saying one by one in the shake the hand line, you suck, you suck, you suck, yeah. Well, his dad, who's the coach, in an unbelievable display of irony, Ran up, grabbed his son, ran him off the field, and yelled for all for us, to, all for us to hear. And he cursed his son, saying to his son, "You son of a, mm, how dare you do that?" And I quote, "I am ashamed to call you my son." What could he not face as a grown man? What stirred up his anger to the point he's ready to do violence? against his own son. It was because he couldn't handle the thought that his son wasn't a success. The fear at the bottom of his heart was that if his son's not a success, he's not a success, and therefore he's not loved. What is courage then in any situation? Courage is, courage is staring down your heart's greatest nightmare and not allowing your heart to fall. Courage is staring down your heart's greatest nightmare, not allowing your heart to fall. Why is this? Why that word? Well, Paul the Apostle, of course, who knew a thing or two about trials, who knew a thing or two about difficult moments, he said later in his life when he wrote to the church in Ephesus at the end of the book, he said, church, friends, whenever you face the trial of your life, whenever you face a difficult moment that you feel you can't handle, he says, when the day of evil comes, I pray you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything i pray you'll stand why would he say this word the word stand well he knew and you should know that ancient warriors in battle whenever they were in battle if they lost their footing if they fell if they went down to the ground they'd be trampled underfoot to lose one's footing meant loss of life and Paul here is telling his friends and telling you that your heart works in the same day when it comes to your trial and your battle whenever there's something that you're facing that you feel you can't take when the day of evil comes when it looks like when it feels like you can't take it anymore you've got to stand and if you don't if you can't handle it if your courage fails if your heart falls, you just may lose everything in the end. What is your heart's greatest nightmare? Some of you today, you can't admit you're wrong. It's killing you. 
Some of you are involved in some toxic relationship or you're allowing that toxic relationship to grow, justifying it somehow. It's going to kill you. Some of you here, you can't though just commit to the kind of person or people or maybe even church God's calling you to commit to and your fear of commitment or a fear of a loss of control, that'll be the thing that gets you in the end. Some of you are lying to yourself. You're telling yourself some kind of story to cover up and mask the reason you're doing something or walking away or whatever it is you shouldn't be going away from. Listen, don't let that be you today. Don't let your courage go missing. Courage is taking on your heart's greatest nightmare, not allowing your heart to fall. How can we do that? Let me give you, and compare and contrast, two options. The first is the Romans, number two, the Romans and their false courage. If you were here two weeks ago, you heard of the ongoing debate in Roman culture between two groups of philosophers, the Stoics and the Epicureans. And the Epicureans were the pleasure seekers, and yeah, they had some level of influence there, but by and large, Stoicism, philosophically, had won the day in Rome, and Roman culture was based on that, which was Stoic philosophy was based on, built on duty and honor, and above all else, law and order. And the Stoics dealt with fear by looking at the fear, looking at themselves, and trying to banish the fear. And of these Stoic philosophers and writers, no one was more brilliant or eloquent or looked to than the philosopher, the writer, a man by the name of Cicero. And Cicero's thinking was classically Roman and Stoic. And here's what Cicero, therefore Roman culture, believed about facing fear, especially fear of death. He said this. He said, courage makes light of death, for the dead are only as they were before they were born. It encounters pain by recollecting that the great pains are ended by death. Others we can usually control if they are endurable, but if they are not, we may serenely quit life's theater when the play has ceased to please us. (laughs) What's he saying? He's saying, courage Here's what courage is. Courage is laughing, ha ha, in the face of fear. Why? Because he says, there's no life after death and therefore it's all meaningless. We can handle fear by remembering there's no point to it all. You endure what you can and when you can't, you can end your life when you want. Oh man. You say, dude, Cicero, that's pretty harsh, yo. What's up with that? Well, What's up with that is that's how the Romans rolled. They looked at the fear, looked at themselves, and banished all thoughts of fear. And that's why Roman culture could be so harsh. It could be so brutal. It could be so conquest-oriented. The Romans loved their law and order. They loved their Pax Romana, all the order that they brought, law and order, or everything. They believed that bad laws are better than no laws. And you can see how much they love law and order, and not just the TV show, sorry, couldn't resist it, in this story. Because what are the soldiers all rush in to break up? What? Disturbing the peace. Right. Uh, What do the soldiers respond to? Their laws, chain of command, their superiors. I mean, you see, you see Paul here, he, he, he pulls out his Roman citizenship, get out of jail free card. And all the Roman soldiers back away like he just pulled the pin on a grenade. 
in a room full of dynamite. They all back off. Why? Well, Paul knows they respect law and order above all else. And you know what? It did give them a sense of courage because these soldiers display a level of courage here, don't they? These soldiers rush in before a mob. How many of us could do that? They rescue Paul for the moment. But if that's the case, then why, in the end, did Roman culture not last, but Christianity survive and thrive? Here's why. Because the Romans dealt with their fears in a way that ultimately could not handle the demands that reality put on them. They based their lives on false courage. And even Cicero the Stoic, Cicero the Great, though he said fear was something to be laughed at, in the end, his own heart was broken by the fear of death. Because history records that when his own daughter, the person he loved the most in the world, when his daughter died giving birth to his grandson, when his daughter died in childbirth, afterward, though his friends turned to help him, though he said, I went to my books, I went to my own philosophy. He said, I tried to overcome my grief and fear of death. He said, but my sorrow defeats all consolation. Why not just banish your fear, Cicero? Why not just tell your sorrow to get lost, huh? Because that may last for a while, but false courage, looking at yourself, banishing fear, can't stand the test of time. Baseball story number two. When I played in high school and college for a number of years, at multiple points, I became so afraid of making a mistake. I could not throw the ball. This is really embarrassing. From second base to first base, and it's besides the throw from pitcher to catcher, it's the shortest throw on the field, easiest throw to field. And my arm became like this, you know, you know, scud launcher. I couldn't tell where the ball was going, up, down, left, right, over the head, at the feet, would cost the team over and over until the coach couldn't take it, and he stuck me out in left field in hopes the ball wouldn't get hit to me, and I had to meet with a counselor for it. And what I was told, though it didn't help, I was told to visualize success. I was told, imagine how good it would feel to make a good throw. I I know how good that would feel. (laughs) Tell me that. To get rid of your fear by visualizing it not happening. Pretend it won't happen. But the problem wasn't physical. The problem was spiritual. It's fear-based. And the solution offered to me was a Roman counterfeit, false source of courage. And here's why that doesn't work in the end. Because the right amount of fear is actually healthy. Being oblivious to all forms of fear can be deadly. You teach your kids, if you got them, about the right kinds of fear. And if you don't, you should. I mean, a couple of years ago, for example... A couple of kids of mine, to my, you know, we may call them Tweedledee and Tweedledummy. Just kidding. All right, uh, they were there, and they had a competition to see who could hold their forehead to the stove the longest. <laughs> True story. They thought the stove wouldn't hurt them. Now, no matter how much they visualized the stove not burning them. It didn't really matter. And you can visualize this yourself. I'm going to jump out of the moving car at 70 miles an hour. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt you no matter how much you visualize it not happening. Listen, overconfidence is just as deadly as missing confidence. Because both 
cause you to miscalculate in the end. And furthermore, banishing fear by looking at yourself and telling yourself, oh, it's something bad isn't going to really happen. That does you no good. When the prospect for a good outcome does not exist, looking at your fear, telling yourself fear doesn't really matter. Oh, it's going to, it doesn't help you when you know that truly doing the right thing may result in your loss, in your demise, or in death in the end. Where can you get the courage to stand in that moment when you discover, as you will at some point, you don't have the courage it takes to face the demands of reality in wherever it's being asked. What can give you the courage to go into the fire of your heart's greatest nightmare? Number three, let's see Paul in true courage. How does Paul here get the courage to do what he does? Because Paul here is brilliant, by the way. He's like, here in the passage, he's toggling between languages like you toggle applications on your smartphone. He's here, his poise is unbelievable. He's here about to get beaten again. He's already been beaten within an inch of his life, about to get beaten again by the Roman soldier. But he doesn't cry out, help, you know, or stop, or somebody help me. No, he asks him, might I have a word with you? In Greek, the language of the educated of his day. Then he turns, he motions to, he asks if he can talk to the people that are beating him. And he motions with his hand, this is an orator's motion, he signals, I've got something to say to y'all. And then he speaks in Aramaic, the language of the common person. This is unbelievable. What reasons does he give for his courage? Where does his defense, his courage come from? It hasn't gone missing. Nor is his courage coming from himself. He gives three reasons, all of them outside himself. Let's look at them in turn. And by the way, you just may notice a pattern as we go. He points, first of all, to his mission. So my courage comes from my mission. He says what God said to him. The Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And of course, at this, the crowd goes nuts. They chant, rid the earth to him. He's not fit to live. Now think about that. Most of us, thankfully, will never face that in our lifetime. I mean, like a mob, right? A mob. Publicly clamoring for our individual death. We get some pushback on social media and we get, you know, our days ruined. Somebody says something nasty about us online and we can't handle it. But Paul here, he gets, he knows he's going to get this kind of reaction, but he says it anyway. What keeps him going? He says, it's my mission. I've got a mission. It's love of someone beyond myself. Baseball story number three. I watched this video this week of this great story about a player who just got called up to the major leagues to play for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And the guy had been in the minors for forever, but he gets the call up. And the Dodgers are going to play the Giants that weekend in L.A. And his parents fly out to watch him play. And the, the Dodgers play, and they win game one, and they win game two. And he still hadn't gotten into play. And game three comes, and it gets to the ninth inning, and it's still tied. And his parents have got to make a decision. Do we stay? and miss our flight or do we go and they decide to stay and miss their flight no matter what and sure enough the game goes to the 11th inning and the Dodgers get two runners on with two outs 
And here he comes. The Dodgers put their son in the hit in his first major league at bat. Like, no pressure, right? It's only the game on the line your first time up. He gets in. Strike one comes. Strike two comes. He's in a hole. And then, of course, naturally, he crushes a ball down the right field line for a double runner, scores all the way around from first Dodgers, win in extra innings. The crowd goes nuts. His teammates rip his jersey off and his parents just hold each other in the stands. Then they they capture what happened to him after the game. He walked down the back hallway and he's holding the very baseball he hit. And he walks up to his dad and they meet and he hands the baseball to his dad and they hug and hold one another for like forever and then the camera interviews his dad and do you know what his dad doesn't say his dad doesn't say anything about the fact that you know he drove his kid to practice for years <laughs> spent who knows how many thousands of dollars getting him to this point Games, bats, gloves, socks, shoes, who knows where. Sacrifice, you know, just encouragement when he was in the minors for years. No. The dad just says, I was just excited for him. For him. And you know what? If you're a parent in here, you're nodding your head right about now because you know this. And I put my head down. In true confession, I cried. When I watch the video, because you know what? You know that what's better than you being a success is when your child is a success. It was when the dream you have for your child or your children comes true and you would do anything to make it happen. You'd pay any cost to see it happen. And that is what mission is in its purest form. A desire to see someone else be greater than you. See, Paul here, he's got a mission, a love in his heart for other people, for like his spiritual children, descendants, people of all nationalities and languages and nations coming home to God. And what makes you unstoppable, you'll stand up to any fear. You'll go before any crowd when you've got a dream and a mission in your heart about something greater than you. And Paul had the same thing and it made him unstoppable. Second, Paul points not just to mission, but to his community as well. See, when he tells his story, you'll notice he makes sure to include all the people who helped get him to where he's got it. And he says, after I was blinded by the light, sorry, 70s song reference, all right, on the road to Damascus, he said, my, feeling free, it's third service, says, my companions led me by the hand into Damascus, because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. Now, here's the point. To quote an old southern saying, 99.9% of you today, and by that I really mean 100%, I just say 99.9 in case you're thinking, oh, I'm going to be the exception. But 99.9% of you today are turtles up on fence posts. You didn't get to where you got on your own. Someone had to help you get up there. You've only gotten where you gotten to because someone somewhere or a lot of someone somewhere helped you got to where you got. No turtle gets up on a fence post by itself and no human being thrives apart from serious investment from other people in their lives. You say, well, what about Rambo? I saw that movie, One Man Army. About the Lone Ranger, he had Tonto. Who taught Rambo to read? Who changed Rambo's diapers, I might add? 
No one succeeds apart from a community. Listen, a lot of people here, they're so encouraging toward me and about our church. And they'll come up and say, it's amazing what you've built here, Morgan. Now, if you try to do that to me, I'm going to cut you off and tell you, listen, church and faith is a team sport. It's a team sport. It just is. I didn't get to where I've gotten on my own, and you haven't gotten to where you've gotten on your own. I, we, we wouldn't be here without our staff, without our deacons, without our elders, John and Galen. We wouldn't be here without our volunteers and our community group leaders. Oh, and right about now you're saying, well, you're dang skippy, Morgan. You haven't gotten here without me. You know, I'm a volunteer here. And you're right. What about you? Do you see yourself the same way? See, many people come into a great church like this. Oh, when you come and you make some friends and your marriage gets some help or your family or your life gets some help and you think over time, you come to think, I've got this. I've got this one. You think my wife and me, I got this or I got this. No, sorry, but you don't got this. You here, you swim in a current that helps you go further, faster than you could ever imagine. Listen, just turn around. Try going the other way, like one of those big lazy rivers in one of those big water parks, right? And just see how far you can get. Just see how you do without that at your back. Listen, without my spiritual family, I know this. I know without my family, spiritual family, mentors and friends, I know what would happen Carrie and me, first of all, we'd probably get lapped by all y'all going around that lazy river because you got the current at your back. Or more likely, we'd become exhausted or even drown. See, no one gets to where they've gotten without the community. See, Paul, when he's pressed, how did you get to where you've gotten, Paul? When he gives a defense for his courage, he said, listen, I've got a community behind me. I've got companions on my journey. I've got Ananias, a mentor in my life. I'm not here just because of me. Third, and finally, Paul points to worship. And here's what I mean. Paul points to a source of courage so far beyond himself. It's stunning. It drowns out everything else. Paul says in his story, here's the pinnacle of it. He said, I fell to the ground. I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. And look what he says. What shall I do, Lord? Oh, let me tell you, that one question is worship defined right there. Worship is centering your life, your behavior patterns, your thinking, your reason for existence around Jesus Christ. What did Paul respond when he met Jesus? Oh, not how do you want me to feel, but what do you want me to do? He could have said anything, but what does this mean? Oh, it means Paul was willing to reorient himself, his life, his heart, his behavior pattern, his message, his mission around Jesus. How could he do this? What could compel him in a moment to switch from one to the other? Well, he didn't exactly give it to you here, but we get it all throughout his letters. Over and over, Paul tells you, he says, I encountered a love so far beyond me, it changed everything. Paul wrote stuff like this. He wrote, it's the love of Christ that compels me. He writes stuff like this. Nothing in all the world can separate me from the love of God. He says, the love of God has been poured out in my heart. He says, love bears all things, believes all things, endures all things, hopes all things. He said, love never fails. 
Why? Why so much about the love of God? Oh, here's why. Do you know why and what all your nightmares, all your fears are really about today? They are about the fact that you feel unloved or you feel unaccepted in some way. Or you're afraid that if you fail, you'll be unaccepted or loved. Or you're afraid of living without that fear in your life. You can't imagine living without it. Listen, are you afraid of pain or of the future or something or what people think about you? Listen, just look at Jesus and what happened to him. That's what Paul is doing here. He knows, he says, if I'm in Christ, God is going to deliver me. God is going to deliver me. Even if it's in a way I can't possibly understand now. Paul here, he's seeing Jesus as his true source of courage. I mean, can you see what's happening here? It's like the end of Jesus' life all over again. Romans, Jews, a mob chanting for the death of Paul, crying out one thing versus another. Conflicting story, conflicting testimony. They're about to execute him, but unlike Paul, who only risked his life, Jesus gave his life. He went into the fire of the greatest nightmare any person has, which is to lose love for forever. Jesus went into the fear of that and he got what we deserve, separation from the ultimate love, Father, Son, Spirit. The love he'd had from forever, he lost so that we could never lose it. We could be brought home to the heart of God. Let me tell you, sometimes God rescues you from death. Sometimes he rescues you through death. But no matter what you are, who you are, if you're God's beloved child, he will bring you through to himself. See, Paul found courage because he wasn't afraid to look truth full in the face. His courage didn't go missing. He didn't settle for a false courage by looking at himself. He found courage by looking at his Savior, Jesus. And you can have that same thing today by looking at Jesus, by meditating on that until your heart becomes hot, until it becomes more real than whatever you face. If you look up beyond that and see what Jesus went through for you, oh, now his courage becomes yours. Amy Carmichael, you may know the name, was a missionary in India. And she spent her life rescuing, especially little girls, from temple prostitution. And one day after returning home from work, she fell into a pit in the dark. And she suffered and struggled the rest of her life from the injuries she sustained that night. And she wrote a lot about it, about the fear she had, the doubt she had, the pain she suffered. And she wrote a series of devotionals and poems, and one of them was called Nothing in the House. I want to read you two verses. One was what her voice was saying to God. The second was what God said to her. She wrote, I thought that I had courage to endure. And sometimes happy songs. Now I am sure thy servant truly hath not anything. And see my songbird hath a broken wing. And God responds, let not your heart be troubled. Do not fear. Why shouldst thou, child of mine, if I am here? My touch will heal thy songbird's broken wing, and he shall have a braver song to sing. Where did her courage come from? Not from herself. From God's champion, God's victor, God's hero, our hero, Jesus.